You're listening to the Horizons Church Podcast. Welcome back to the Horizons Church Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Josiah Pitts. And today we're joined by phone, a very special guest, my old friend from Liberty University, Ben Whittington. Ben, so good to have you on the podcast today. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, we're really excited to have you on. Why don't you tell our audience just a little bit about yourself so they know a little bit about what you do and get a little taste of what we're going to talk about today. Oh, thanks. Yeah, so I'm a Christian philosopher. I went to Liberty with Josiah back in the day, and I did my undergrad and master's there. After my master's degree, I went off, and me and my wife moved to Chicago, and I was a pastor for a short time. And then I became an adjunct professor, and I've been teaching philosophy at four different colleges, actually, now. Several different, mainly community colleges, but a lot of different colleges. And so I've been teaching philosophy, religion courses, a lot of like intro to philosophy, intro to ethics, intro to business ethics, which was the weirdest course I've ever taught. (laughs) Wow. Um, Intro to religion. And so I've taught all these courses at various colleges. I also, when I was in Chicago, I created a series called Socrates and Elmhurst, which was really fun. And we discussed various philosophical, you know, topics related to Christianity, have like kind of forum type things. And since then, we have moved back to Nashville, where I'm originally from. And I am now a full-time teacher at a Christian classical school. The school is actually in Cookville. And then I uh, teach adjunct at two different colleges. So I teach philosophy at Volunteer State Community College and the College of DuPage. So I'm doing all this. And I am now a PhD student at the University of Birmingham in England. And so I'm now studying and doing all these programs and a busy life. I'm also a father to an amazing wife. My wife, Emily, is a labor delivery nurse. And I have a two and a half year old daughter named Hadassah and a, uh, I guess, eight week year old daughter named Isla. Awesome. So I know I, I haven't told our mutual friend about this yet, but we gave both of our daughters Hebrew names. I'm really excited to tell Dr. Fowler, <laughs> yes. our, our mutual friend about that. <laughs> yeah, Dr. Fowler will love that. Dr. Fowler was a professor Ben and I both had, really a Gamaliel type of guy, just brilliant, well-versed in Old Testament Hebrew, amazing man. I'm sure he'll definitely appreciate that. <laughs> yeah. Other than that, I mean, I'm a huge Predators and Titans fan. Uh, I'm oh, actually- boo. <laughs> <laughs> what team do you like in West Virginia? Listen, we are Steelers and Pens fans here, all right? <laughs> really? Yeah, man. I had that's no all idea that was a thing. I thought you guys just pay attention to like college football and like, kind of <laughs> forgot about everything else. Well, we are huge Mountaineer fans, of course, but yeah, no. Around here, man, it's Steelers and uh, the Pittsburgh Penguins. So Yeah, I mean, yeah that's not great. Um, <laughs> Well, I didn't know you did that. Would have had a different answer. No, but uh, I'm also I'm not sure how you feel about this. But it's not a big deal. But me and my wife are like huge Survivor nuts. That <laughs> yeah. we are watching the current season of Survivor on Wednesday nights. Um, I, I, I did not get to watch the last night's episode yet because we were busy last night. So we recorded it, watched it tonight. So don't tell me anything. But then we rewatch previous seasons in between new episodes. Mm. So we're watching season 39 is the new season, and we're watching season 29 on our own between us. So, so you are a philosopher, Titan, Predator fan, Survivor watching yes. guy. Quite an amalgam. <laughs> <laughs> 
Oh, that's awesome. Well, you led off, of course, with you're a Christian philosopher. So you've obviously studied philosophy in depth. You're well-read, well-versed. You're going to be doing a PhD at the University of Birmingham in England. I'm just kind of curious for the sake of our listeners, what drew you to philosophy and what kind of sparked your drive for it? Yeah, that's a good question. I suppose there are really three things and they're a little odd if you've never thought about them. So I, I don't mean to like say like something weird, but I think the first one that's probably the most understandable is when I was an undergrad studying a lot of Old Testament, I had five Hebrew classes in undergrad, and I was really always interested in the question of why does God allow evil, the kind of problem of evil question. Mm -hmm. And when I was in biblical studies, I was really interested in any kind of passage relating to the character of God or how God relates to evil. You know, I think one of the core passages in the Old Testament is in Exodus 34, where they tell us the character of God is one that he is full of loving kindness and mercy, always slow to anger, and that he hates evil and this kind of thing. It's all like, okay, if that's the character of God, then like, why is there evil? And um, Mm -hmm. there's an assortment of questions in that. I remember one day speaking to actually Dr. Fowler for that matter there's a passage in it's in Kings and and Chronicles yeah. mm-hmm. um, I don't know which one this version is it's a different version where God sends an evil spirit to Saul if you yep. recall that verse I do I yeah. is it Kings or Chronicles that one's in I think that one you're thinking there's Kings and it's in 1 Samuel I'm pretty sure oh okay so yeah it's, it's in one of these that it's like I know like in one of them it, it phrases it different yeah so we're reading that and just kind of in Old Testament theology after Fowler and trying to figure out like how does that work because that seems pretty bad yeah <laughs> and I remember Dr. Fowler kind of getting weirdly kind of, I mean, he appeared a little, not annoyed at me, but just kind of annoyed at the question for a minute. And he's like, this is written in Hebrew. And he's like, and in Hebrew, the term for evil, I believe it's rock, is like this term. It means evil when it means evil. And it means calamity when it means calamity. It means troublesome when it means troublesome. He's like, there's a whole range of meanings. And it works like this in Akkadian and every other language this word appears. And he was like, so yeah, you can translate this back evil here. But here, the sense is not this kind of opposition to God thing. The point is that this spirit is one that's causing trouble and, you know, misery, and he's doing that to Saul to get him to repent. Mm. And I remember kind of thinking through that going, that makes sense to me. This is not like him sending a satanic spirit, at least that was interpretation. You know, people disagree with this, that's fine, but... I remember going to his office afterward and just kind of talking to him for about an hour about this. And I just kind of found after that conversation that I was just really interested in evil. Like, not in like a weird <laughs> fetish way, but like, yeah. you know, I was really interested in like, you know, why does God allow evil? So that was, I think, a really fundamental issue. Another issue that always interested me was kind of the doctrine of inerrancy yeah. and hermeneutics. And I recall my senior year of undergrad, I had a professor, it was his first semester there, and he introduced us to, you know, here are the different schools of hermeneutics. And he introduced us to something called philosophical hermeneutics Hmm. and it's a kind of an odd school but it kind of goes into like how does language really work and how do you determine if a certain statement is true or false and that interested me because of questions I had about inerrancy and and I remember he kept bringing up this name of Derrida and I was like who is this mysterious figure of Derrida (laughs) and so I went to our philosophy chair and I said hey I'm learning about this I'm like kind of interested in philosophy and philosophical hermeneutics and then they had a whole class on this where they really read a book by a great 
great evangelical theologian, Kevin Van Hooser, if you've ever had yeah. the joy. Yeah, and so Van Hooser has a book called Is There Meaning in This Text? And so the whole class was going through this book. When, at the minute he said that, I was like, I'm super interested. And so that was a big motivator for me to do my master's degree in philosophy and not an MDiv or something. Because I was like, I want to take this class. Now, yeah. kind of skipping ahead for a minute, when I actually took the class and read Derrida, I said to myself, this is really dumb. <laughs> 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 I ended up throwing a lot of that out. Van Hooser is right. But I, you know, there's a lot of weird stuff when you get in there. And I was like, this is not as interesting. Then I found out in hindsight, the hermeneutic professor that taught me a lot of this, I feel like didn't have the philosophical chops to explain it well enough. And so I was more interested in it than I would have been had he just explained it better. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but, you know, it's fine. I was like, you know, I'm, I'm in this. It's good. And then I think the last thing that was important, and this kind of goes to my, how I met my wife story, but I met my wife. I went to South Africa one summer and in South Africa, it was like a mission trip at Liberty. And I remember there was some conversation, we're eating breakfast and it was me and actually my sister-in-law and your wife's friend, Anna Nesbaum, mm-hmm. and me and Anna were chatting about something. And I brought up something about Glenn Beck. And I said, you know, I'd really love to learn more about Mormonism because I know my family loves Glenn Beck and I don't really understand Mormonism. Yeah. Something like this. And I did not know, but Anna and my wife and her sisters had all done mission trips in Utah ministering to Mormons. Oh, wow. Yeah, I, I had no idea about that. It was a really cool thing they had done. And so when we got back, Anna was convinced, oh, you need to meet my sister, Emily. You guys would get along great. And she was telling Emily, I found your future husband and all this stuff. <laughs> so she takes credit for all this. Still, she should. But by chance, or you know, by providence, I should say, really, Mormon missionaries came to my wife's door, but they were all men. And so they could not go, because my wife had an apartment at the time, mm-hmm. they couldn't go inside. And my wife was all for talking more missionaries. And so Anna invited me and another friend of mine, and we came and we ended up having dinner, and we made dinner for these Mormon missionaries in Lynchburg, Virginia. Every, I think it was Thursday night, and we would have dinner, and we would talk, and they would, you know, tell us about their faith, and we would just ask questions and learn, and I learned a lot about Mormonism. It was a great experience. And wow. one of the things that really hit me very quickly was in a very weird way, a lot of the ways that the more missionaries would talk were ways that I heard Christian pastors talk. Mm. And that bothered me. Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> and, you know, I, you know, you'd bring up stuff, you know, we'd go through a passage and they would say, like, this is how you interpret it. I'm like, well, I was like, what do you do with, because it feels like that contradicts this in scripture. And they'd be like, well, you have to do, you know, this weird move and this and this. I'm like, oh, I don't think this is fair. And I think a good example of this is I remember recently talking to a Mormon friend of mine who had this quote where Joseph Smith, the founder of Mormonism, Mm -hmm. he translated, I'm doing air quotes right now for your listeners, translated (laughs) the book of John. And when he did that, he translated John 1.1, which is obviously the passage where John says, you know, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So Jesus is God. Yeah. Correct. (laughs) Spoilers. But um, he interpreted as if the phrase word, the word word, I, that sounds weird, but you know, <laughs> yeah. word in there, logos is the Greek word. So yep. logos in John 1, 1 meant plan of salvation. And so in the beginning was the plan of salvation. And that was in God's mind. Wow. And God had this plan of salvation is how Joseph Smith translates it. And so that's how he understood it, which was weird when he told me this. And I was like, okay, hold on. And so I end up pulling up and I start looking up second century Christian theologians. And I look up, you know, because we have writings from not only John's disciple, but 
his disciple's disciple, so his grand disciple, and mm-hmm. multiple theologians. I start pulling up all these things, and I'm like, listen, when they use this exact language, when they quote John, they understand that Logos is referring to Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, so how do you want, like, what possible way, like, how am I supposed to rationally take Joseph Smith's word that he interpreted 1,800 years later with no knowledge of the original language over John's disciples' word over who got John's interpretation right. Yeah. And they're like, well, you know, if you had the Holy Spirit, you would get it. And I just was like, that is so crazy. I was like, I don't know what to do with that. Yeah. So for me, ever since really this Mormonism thing, I've been really, really passionate about being very clear and saying to myself, okay, I think Christianity is reasonable and I don't think you have to have a special set of glasses to understand Christianity. Now, maybe there are certain aspects of Christianity, right, that you have to be Christian to get in the same way that, you know, you have to be married to really understand your wife, but you don't have to be married to know the basics of your wife. There are parts about your wife that you don't need to be married to know about. Mm -hmm. So for me, that was always something of, I don't think this kind of view of you know, if you're not a Christian, you really can't understand it. You know, we have this special kind of knowledge. To me, that was weird. And also the kind of revisionist history of, yeah, that Jesus was right, and his apostles were right, but after that, everyone got it wrong until Joseph Smith. Right. <laughs> um, that always repulsed me. And so I was very interested in figuring out how do we understand the reasonableness of Christianity? How can we make it make sense? And obviously Mormonism denies the core facets of Christianity. So like that's outside, but what are the boundaries of Christianity? Like, you know, C.S. Lewis is mere Christianity. And so I I was always interested in that. So all these things really drove me to philosophy. And obviously, you know, people like C.S. Lewis and Robbie Zacharias and William Lane Craig and all these guys were positive influences on me for sure. Yeah, that is awesome. So given all that you just said, I think this next question is, pretty pertinent. How did the church historically connect the life of the mind, to use that kind of terminology, how did the church historically connect the life of the mind to living out the Christian faith? Because I think it's kind of a more recent-ish thing that we've set up this dichotomy, so to speak. How, in your reading, in your study, have you seen that play out? Maybe the best way I can think of it is that I think when you look at pastors and church leaders like Irenaeus, Augustine, Aquinas... You go to even like Martin Luther, John Calvin, John Wesley, George Whitfield, John Henry Newman. Most church leaders in the early church, the medieval church, and even in the modern church, most of them were considered some of the most knowledgeable people of their day. Mm-hmm. These pastors were theologians, but they were also philosophers typically, especially after the first couple hundred years of the church. To be a theologian, you had to master not only the basic liberal arts disciplines, but either medicine or law before you could go in and study theology. And so it was a very highly esteemed thing where now like it's not the same. I think also in the early church, especially, I mean, this is all throughout in the early church, there was always a connection between what does the Bible say? What does philosophy say? What does science say? What does theology say? And they're always kind of doing those together. And sometimes you get really wonky things. If you've ever read some of the church fathers, mm-hmm. I don't know if this is okay to say on this podcast, but if you ever read like Augustine on yep. like lust and sex, it's mm-hmm. like really weird. And you're like, how did you get? 
get this. <laughs> so, I mean, that doesn't mean they're always right, but they were always some of the most knowledgeable people. And so I sort of one. I mean, I'm sort of unclear on when the divide really happened. It seems that in the past 100 years or 200 years, there is a big gap, and especially in America. And so now pastors are not regarded as the thought leaders of much, and they're generally not. Um, <laughs> and so, you know, I, you don't uh, say. <laughs> So, I mean, it's not like when there's, you know, uh, in Israel, for instance, when they have a rabbi who's like highly influential in all politics, and we don't have that. And part of that separation of church and state, but I suppose probably the best, most obvious place for me is that especially when the conflict of science and religion happen, most of the conservative theologians kind of leave academia and create their own stuff. Mm -hmm. And so that is a big divide. I think one of my favorite contrasts is if you look at the theologians and pastors in England versus America. 20th century. Mm-hmm. So like in the 19th and 20th century in England, you have the towering John Henry Newman, who we don't really remember that well, but he was a towering public intellectual theologian philosopher, Anglican and Catholic, Anglican and they turned Catholic toward the end. Very towering figure, wrote on everything, combated liberalism and various things. You know, you had G.K. Chesterton, who was a writer, but extremely influential. Mm-hmm. Joseph Butler, who's a guy at Oxford, you had C.S. Lewis and Tolkien. And you had all these very powerful figures of when you thought of Christianity and you thought of leaders like you would think of these figures and even today like a Richard Swinburne or N.T. Wright would be an example of this that mm-hmm. there are these very clear and obvious examples of there's a really smart Christian Yeah. where in America if you think about in the past hundred years there are smart Christians and I'm not at all trying to denigrate that there are really intelligent Christians there always have been but they're not nearly as public where no. like Carl Henry is a really good example of a really intelligent Christian but I mean he doesn't have a fraction of the influence that C.S. Lewis had right. in the culture. And so the real cultural leaders of Christianity were like a Billy Graham and MLK. And MLK actually is a really towering intellectual figure, but his actual stuff is far more liberal. And a lot of his followers really didn't ever dive into that yeah. because it was too lofty. And so it's not like people are going to read him and then go read John Hick, who, <laughs> who liked or something. And so you think about like a Billy Graham versus a Chesterton or something like that. The sorts of figures that people thought of were different. And part of that is because of the different cultural things. I think Lewis's Mere Christianity is a great example. Mere Christianity is still a best-selling book, but when he said it, it was over the BBC during World War II. Everyone in the country listened to this. (laughs) (laughs) It's not like America has this thing where everyone is essentially not coerced, but everyone watches one show. Like Imagine you watch one show and it was like Tim Keller explaining, here's the basics of Christianity. Mm -hmm. That doesn't happen. And so I do really think that although American England has had very similar issues, and there are different ones too, but I do think the kind of public intellectual Christians that England is had has helped British Christians, even though they have lots of problems, they don't suffer from this kind of life of the mind thing like American Christians do. Right. This is a weirdly weird American problem. Yeah, and that's probably another conversation. Maybe we have you back sometime to talk about that because I have a lot of opinions on that that are probably not as informed as yours, but it's a very good observation and I think it's very true. The next question I'd like to ask you with the time we have left is as a pastor myself, I'm particularly interested in helping the folks in our congregation 
congregation, folks that I happen to just interact with on a regular basis. I'm interested in helping them and helping us go about trying to recover, if that's a term I could use, the importance of the life of the mind, if that makes sense. So from a philosopher's perspective, how do you think pastors in the church might best go about doing something like that? Maybe the two most practical pieces of advice I could give is, number one, pastors should really seek to be clear and to be as clear as possible on things, and especially if it arises in like doctrinal things. But I hear a lot, I was in a, my church actually, one of our elders gave this sermon on social justice and the actual words were fine, but he was talking about, you know, there are all these systems that disenfranchise people and these levers of power aren't fair to everyone. And it's this kind of ambiguous language that I'm like, everyone's going to interpret that in their own grid. Right. And yeah, I agree with that, but I don't know what you're talking about. Like, mm-hmm. if you give me something tangible and tell me firefighters are responding to this minority group slower than this other group, yeah, like, I'll fight that. But I don't know how to fight this vague concept of, levers of power. Like, yeah. <laughs> and so I think one of the things is try to be as clear as possible and the clearer you get in theology, I mean, it's, it's very hard to do. And so I think the clearer you get, it helps alleviate ambiguous things. I think clarity is one of the big things that philosophy really helps with is just to make ambiguous things clear. The other thing I would say is that especially when it comes to a lot of Christians and churches want to influence culture. And a lot of Christians have this mindset that if we just kind of have this grassroots movement, a lot of times it's a political emphasis, but it doesn't have to be. Yeah. You know, they have this idea of like, okay, if we just make more Duck Dynasty films or something, <laughs> like like that will yeah. that will do it. And they don't realize a lot of times, I know James Hunter has a great book on this, James Davidson Hunter, it's called To Change the World, about what sort of institutions in our culture really influence things. And things like academic think tanks, like Hollywood's a great example, high artistic things and the Smithsonian and different things, but it's kind of an elitist view in a sense, but there are these high institutions of power yeah. that are very influential on culture and Christians by and large ignore all of those very high things and they aim very low for things that are already only reaching Christians. And so it was weird when you do, like I know Charles Murray one of the great conservative thinkers has this interesting point about how most liberals, they've done polling, like most liberals have never met a conservative evangelical, mm-hmm. which is bizarre. But part of the reason is because like they're just completely different circles. Yeah. And so one thing I often say is like encouraging Christians to influence these actual higher institutions. I'm all for, like I went to Liberty, I had a great experience there, but you know, there's nothing wrong with going to Notre Dame's law school or going to work for the American Enterprise Institute or something like this. Right. Um, and, and those are both conservative, right? I mean, those are both examples. Notre Dame is friendly toward conservatives and evangelicals. And the American Enterprise Institute is a conservative academic think tank. But, you know, like it's, it's going to be hard for you to work at the New York Times. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm not suggesting that you have to go on to Harvard and New York Times, but there are outlets that have significant cultural influence that oftentimes we are, as evangelicals, terrified of. Yeah. And that attitude, as far as a cultural influence, is not going to help. Yeah. But as far as within the church, I think clarity, I think recommending current books on subjects is really good. Mm-hmm. Um, I know when, when I was a pastor, one of the issues that contributed to us leaving was we had this book that everyone in our church had to read that was a kind of self-help Bible-y Christian book. Oh, uh, yes. But uh, it's kind of suggested like modern psychology was satanic or something. And, 
you know, it would say stuff like, you know, today we say that people have, quote, you know, air quotes, mental illnesses, but mm-hmm. these are really spiritual and stuff like this where it's just like, okay, this is not good material. Like we yeah. should not be giving this out. Like there are real things going on here and yeah, there can be spiritual stuff. I'm like, but we shouldn't be telling someone that has bipolar disorder, just read your Bible more. And so I think part of the thing is we need to be current in materials we give and clear on what we say and try to be more effective in our strategies to influence culture would be the things I can think of. But I would encourage any Christian to read James Hunter's book, uh, To Change the World. Yeah, that's somewhere on my list of readings in the coming year or two, and uh, I'm eager to get into that. Here's a final question for you before we get off here. If you could address one thing that the wider culture and then that the church believes, but they both believe them wrongly. So it's a presupposition or a worldview or some doctrine that they hold to pretty widely that you think that's just so wrong. And if you get that fixed, so much will be straightened out. What would that be? Do you want them to both be the same thing or different things? They can be different things. I have a couple in mind. Let me give two brief ones because the first one I think is really funny. I think one thing that the culture needs to really think harder about is sexuality. Mm-hmm. In my college, I always give my ethics classes, I always give these surveys and I always love asking the question, are there any immoral forms of sex? <laughs> and seeing the responses because people are very divided on this. One thing I try to show in that question is like, people are extremely divided on that. I'm like, hey, like we often assume that everyone agrees with us on ethical things and like this is a pretty basic question and like we're all divided on it. So like don't expect everyone to be on this. But you know, people that are trying to argue that like if you feel it, you should do it. There's a ridiculous, ridiculous ridiculous Diet Coke commercial with some actress from a popular show, I don't recall. And she's like, I drink Diet Coke because it's delicious. If you want to live in a year, live in a year. You do you. You know, just yeah. live in the moment. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, no, like if Diet Coke causes cancer, you should not drink it. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, you might not believe that. I'm like, but don't do it just because it tastes good. This is dumb. And similarly, in you know, sexual morality, just because you might have desires or feelings does not mean it's okay. And I, I always bring up this extremely disturbing story about a journalist committing bestiality oh. about 20 years ago. Yeah, it's, I'm, I'm, I won't get into it this, but, you know, I, uh, I often bring it up. I, like, read part of the story and the students just, you can just see the faces start to cringe and be like, oh, yeah, that's not okay. And then I'm like, oh, so you do think there's a line here. Yes, I was going to say, my point is proven. <laughs> Yeah, and I think pornography is a similar point. I remember I asked, is pornography good? Is it, he- is it healthy? Is it bad? And I remember I had this student talk about how it was healthy and like you should do it. And I bring up like weird things like what about like sex robots or something like this that are weird and terrible. And yeah. I had this guy that was like, no, it's really good. And then one girl was like, well, what if you're married? And the guy was like, well, yeah, it's still a natural thing. It's healthy. And the girl was like, wait. And these are not Christians. And, yeah. and the girl was like, wait, but isn't that like kind of the purpose of marriage? So you can like be romantic with one another and you don't have to turn to that and he was like well you know like if you, you know if my wife is working all day you know I, I can't I can't wait that long it's a long time <laughs> Jeez. and the girl I mean you could just see the utter look of disgust on her face when he said this <laughs> and it was the most funny moment I've ever had teaching I'm just uh, seeing this look on her face and I was like so we often think that like our views are obvious I'm like yeah this is a good illustration of there's a lot of disagreement and we have to think very hard through these yeah I think when it comes to the church Apart from some of the things I've already said, one of the things that I would just suggest for churches is that as especially there's a widespread movement among young people leaving the church in America, especially when it comes to, and this is one of these things of often 
churches are very out of date on doctrines. Not that the doctrines are wrong, but for instance, a good example is like on the issue of inerrancy, like Kevin Van Hooser is a leading evangelical on this. And I would encourage pastors like, yeah, go read Kevin Van Hooser. He's great. You don't need to be reading some obscure 1900 pastor on this. Like, yeah, yeah. You know, read contemporary scholarship on this and use the correct language on this. Because there are times where the language we use will instantly create an obstacle for people, especially when it comes to that issue of, I fully believe in inerrancy and the Bible's true, but if you're not careful in how you articulate it, it's very easy to say doctrines in an incorrect way that will imply that, for instance, like the psychology example, that will imply like psychology is all wrong. And then anyone yeah. who's ever had a therapist will be like, oh, well, this is dumb. Yeah. This kind of stuff. So I think that's one of the dangers. A lot of ways people talk will alienate people inadvertently because they don't speak very clearly on it. I think the Bible is one that how we talk about inerrancy is often not the way that evangelical scholars actually talk about it. It's not yeah. the right language, and mm-hmm. the language does matter. And so yeah. when we talk about clarity, that's one of the things of making sure the language you use lines up with scholars. So you know, when someone says, hey, well, what, what do I do with this passage? And you can say, oh, well, here, what so-and-so says about this, and you can kind of read it, and then you know, you can kind of say, like, well, here's a good scholar that really helps, that a good Christian that can help on this. And you don't want that scholar to be using language that you just called heretical accidentally. (laughs) And that is the way a lot of churches tend to operate. And so, so certainly like, again, like I'm a Christian philosopher. I come from an evangelical background. I'm certainly not a fundamentalist. And so certainly if you are inclined toward a more fundamentalist background, there's going to be some differences and we can hash that out and talk about it. But as long as some core assumptions I'm making here, I I think that is the kind of advice I would give churches is when you talk about particular doctrines, make sure you're clear. And so you're not accidentally alienating people, Mm -hmm. especially in this era when a lot of things you know like you know you have a smartphone you can look it up yeah it's not hard to disprove stuff right. I, remember I had a pastor give this thing about i mean this is like a very good example of like he didn't know his stuff well enough and he said something like scholars say that the gospels were written no later than 50 a.d and i'm well aware of all this stuff because I, I deal with it i, I didn't mention but you know I, I had a published chapter on like bart airman so i've dealt with a lot of this stuff and i was thinking to myself i was like no one says this yeah <laughs> i'm like i don't know of anyone that says this <laughs> And I was like, you know, I'm like, you're just weird. I'm like, the problem is like, if anyone is curious, if if anyone's struggling with that kind of question, because they've read Bart Ehrman or something and they look it up, it's extremely easy to disprove. And then that person's discredited. Yeah. I hope that is helpful, but those are some things that come to mind. Certainly when it comes to science, our culture way misunderstands science and they have this weird view that somehow science speaks on everything and doesn't require logic or something. Right. I, I, I don't really understand that. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, logic is one of the things that most people don't do very often. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Take some logic classes, folks. <laughs> yeah, yeah, sure. Oh, golly. Well, hey, Ben, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Great discussion, invigorating to the life of this mind anyway, and I'm sure it'll be the case for our listeners. Thank you so much for joining us. All right, thank you very much, Josiah. Yeah, and as always, guys, if you have any questions, send them to podcast at horizonschurch.net, and we'll catch you next time. Mm-hmm.